welcome back episode 11 of the best money i ever spent presented by rally this week we welcome artist amber vittoria if you followed along with any of the coverage on social media throughout nft nyc which is the big nft conference here in new york in late june then you probably heard about amber or saw her work she's an incredible artist both physical and digital she's a poet a designer an illustrator and she made the transition to fine art and now over the last year, she's become one of the most notable new artists in Web3 and NFTs, having released a prolific amount of work, which has translated to millions of dollars in secondary market sales. She lives the concept that an overnight success takes 10 years, and for her, it was almost to the day. She's collaborated with huge brands like Adidas and L'Oreal and Facebook. All of her work, her collaborations, and her own collections are these incredibly vivid, typically abstracted strips of bright colors, which are often based on poetry and always rooted in the female form and portrayals built around today's perspectives on women. Her work looks like joy, and that's the only way I can really describe it if you haven't seen it. And we talk a bit about that in the podcast today, where we also talked about her work, her future, the current state of NFTs, and much more. And as always, as a disclaimer, nothing on this episode should be considered financial advice. You shouldn't make any decision, financial, investment, trading, or otherwise, based on any of the information presented here without doing your own research. And now the disclaimers out of the way, episode 11 of the best money I ever spent presented by Rally with one of the most authentic artists you'll ever meet, whether on canvas or in NFT form, Amber Vittoria. Victoria, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. I know it's been um, the last like three or four weeks, especially. I feel like you've been probably one of the busiest people in the Web three space, in in the space of art and design. You have a massive project coming, so to squeeze out like thirty minutes for us on a uh, the start of a holiday weekend, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for thinking of me for this. Also, yeah, my those three to four weeks definitely impacted my voice, so. That is why I sound the way I sound today. That's just, that's just the sound of, of, of hustle. That's that work. That's like the work ethic that you've applied for the last year. I feel like it's all part of it. So I'm glad we got the authentic version of you. That's great. So, I mean, we have a lot to talk about. And there's, there's a lot of great stuff you're working on. I think that your sort of career trajectory lends itself to so many great conversations. I do want to start. We're recording this the week after the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This isn't a political podcast by any means, but I think it bears mentioning, not just because of my own personal beliefs and everything that's happening in the space, but you were one of the most outspoken artists and creators uh, on social media last week, understandably. I want to ask the question from a creative standpoint. Um, art is about emotion, right? And it's, it's one of those things, especially your art, which is based sort of directly on the female form and, and art that draws from femininity and emotion. When something kind of insane and frustrating and unexpected like this happens, do you channel that into your art or is that something where you feel like, you know, the medium's not the response to it? You have to sort of have the conversation and you wait it out. Is this something that finds its way into your work? I would say inherently being a female artist, I think it always does. Um, obviously, I can't speak for all women that are artists, but, you know, um, I feel artists in general usually take the world around them and put it into their work one way or another. So um, when something like this happens, it usually finds its way into my work because that's how I process best. Um, but yeah, also, you know, tweeting out 
sometimes it feels like into the void also helps a little bit too. Yeah, and I think that, you know, you, so there's so much emotion in your work, and I think that you've tra translated across so many different mediums, and that's a mix of, of poetry, of art, of now in the Web3 space. Something we've talked a bit about in other episodes with other designers and artists, fine art as a career and channeling all, everything that's happening around you and turn that into a career, a career that pays the bills in particular, that's about as rare as kind of, you know, becoming a professional athlete. It's one of those things I think people don't realize and we have a similar background. I went to art school. You get out of school, you become a designer. You're kind of trying to figure out, like, can I turn fine art into a career? You've done, you started art and illustration. You've done agency work. Um, you did commercial work. Now a decade after all that, you find yourself in this kind of rare space of someone who can make a true living, a real living off of art. I want to go back a little bit. What was the day-to-day -day like for you in, say, a, a 2013, 2014, 2015 compared to a normal day now? 2013 to 2015, I was 23 to 25 years old. Um, now I'm 32, math. Um, even though I like to say I'm still 29 until the pandemic ends, so I'm holding tight to that theory. <laughs> um, but when I was 23, I was working as a web designer at Victoria's Secret. Um, I probably just moved from my parents' house into an apartment in Astoria with one of my best friends from high school. And um, so I took my commute from two hours to 45 minutes each way, which was kind of nice. Um, then moving into 24, 25, I left and I started working as a designer at VaynerMedia. Um, both jobs, I was still finding freelance work with like illustration, art, design on the side. I think back then that was like the beginning of like Instagram's rise to social media fame. So I wasn't really finding brands on Instagram yet to collaborate with, but really on Craigslist, which is kind of dicey, um, you know, crazy. yeah, That's you crazy. have to have uh, boundaries in place for sure. If you're going to get freelance work on Craigslist. <laughs> um, but, you know, found some freelance design work on Craigslist and um, while working full time. Um, and then flash forward to now, um, I don't use Craigslist anymore, <laughs> um, which I mean, no hate to Craigslist, but um, uh, I think with the rise of so many different types of social media platforms, it becomes a lot easier for artists to connect with brands that have similar interests. So um, I'd say part of my workload is still doing that commercial work, um, whether my work is used on garments or for advertising or on product. Um, and then also selling my work as fine art. So whether that's tethered to an NFT or not, um, usually nine times out of 10 now it is an NFT itself or tethered to an NFT. So um, it's been really exciting to kind of give priority to the fine art aspect of my practice because that's kind of where I want to go in the future and be super selective with um, the corporate and client work that I do going forward. So I'm um, starting to go down that path. But, and, and you touched on something really, really important. I think that rise of social media and finding a kind of niche, you've built a really big, strong following on social without, I'm not talking about like TikTok dances and, and you know, catching on to memes. I'm talking about purely with your work and with your voice. Do you think those two things can live together? I think it's something where commercial work sometimes gets looked at a little bit weird in the gallery construct. And it's looked at in a way where it's like, design and art that or it's not looked at or not i mean you, you hit on the head not looked at it's something that's thought about as kind of like yeah you know fine art can live here but those two things can't mix and i think the way that you use social media is really interesting in that it's not the look at me type of social media that everybody's used to 
And it's also sort of your work is now truly being accept, accepted as art while you still maintain that kind of commercial persona. You do collaborations. You've done a prolific amount of work this year. How, how can artists and how should artists be using social media? Do you think that can live in the construct of being a real person, not saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, and then having that fine art career that goes with it? Do you use that as a tool, like a sales tool, or is that more about your personality? It's a great question. I'm glad that you don't think that it sounds like, look at me, because sometimes that's what it feels like. You're like, hello, world. That's an imposter syndrome. Yeah. That's anyone successful has that feeling. It's okay to think like, that way. Like, oh, God, sometimes, you know, especially as um. Anyway, to first answer your question before I go on my social media tangent, um, <laughs> I would say that I approach social media how I like to use it best, obviously with an asterisk because social media platforms are evolving to stay relevant. So a good example is the rise, when, when Snapchat had its big rise with um, you know their storied content, Instagram kind of swiped that. Now we're starting to see with TikTok taking a huge foothold in social media that Instagram's kind of coming back with reels for better or worse. Um, so I think that obviously within the realm of these platforms pivoting, creators have to kind of pivot with them, which, you know, can be tough. Like I don't particularly enjoy making video content of my process, but I do it in a way that is the least intrusive to my process and to my joy of making that work while still be able to, you know, to get my work out there and for people to see it knowing that social media now gives um, priority to video. So it's kind of like a balance of like, what are you willing to do so people can see and resonate with your work without going too far and then taking the joy out of it for yourself. So that's usually my approach. I'm glad that I don't have to do any meme responses or like dances or anything like that. Um, I know artists that do and they kind of have fun with it. I think that's great. That's definitely not me. So I'm glad that I've kind of found my niche, I feel like right when I find my flow after platform changes, they change it again. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's been really nice about Web3 kind of to pivot is that you could just be yourself and people want to support you because they resonate with your work. You don't have to do all of this song and dance to get people to notice your work. Um, so I do really like that. And I hope that it starts to impact social media in a more meaningful way as soon as possible. <laughs> so Yeah, I mean, I have to say that the it is what you put out, and this is across mediums from on Twitter, on, on Instagram, it is authentic. And I think you touched on something really important that I've kind of said about your work too, that it does, it, it, it feels joyful. It does feel like joy, the, the look and the feel of it and the way you present it, it has this inherent feeling of like, um, I feel the emotion that comes with it. And that's not just because of the titles of the work, which I think a lot of times they relate back to poems or to pieces that you put together in written work the colors and it's really vibrant and these these color ribbons and this kind of abstractness that turns into one piece, everything feels kind of happy. So even in moments where you might express frustration or where a week like this, which is so heavy and there's so much going on, there's still this element of joy that you bring to it. And particularly you kind of pivoted that conversation to NFTs. With Web3, uh, you've been really honest about your entry into Web3. A lot of people that came out in the last year and had success pretended that it was all part of this plan for the last 20 years, even before Web3 existed. Really? In the recent, <laughs> I wish that I could have like had the, that foresight. I would be on an island somewhere that I own. Completely agree. But that's part of your authenticity, I feel like, too. In the 137 documentary, the short that you did that came out um, a couple of days ago, you spoke to the fact that a year ago, you and your husband found CryptoPunks, and that was kind of your entry into this space. Since then, you've put out this prolific amount of work, dozens of projects or collaborations and pieces that are really NFTs or Web3 specific, millions of dollars in sales in the secondary market. 
Is that the medium that you feel like you gravitate most towards now? And is that where you see your career evolving, even for fine art? Do you think it's always going to have this digital component now? Or is this kind of a stopping point for you, do you feel like? I think that it'll always have a digital component, even if I'm doing like paintings that are behind me. Um, I think that with time, we are leading more digital lives. Um, you know, we have filters for our faces now, which is kind of terrifying. Um, but also the, we have avatars and we connect with people online. And I think that's only going to feel more, for lack of a better term, natural as time goes on. So I think similarly with artwork, um, people will be able to collect and support work from artists digitally and not have to worry about storing it or um having enough wealth to be able to collect work. I think that within this new space, it really creates accessibility for artists to play with how, you know, expensive or affordable their work is, if they're doing one of ones or if they're doing additions um, and it allows for a bigger reach. So I think that going forward, there'll always be some digital component um, for artwork. Um, it's similar to like, I use the example, which I don't know if I came up with it. I don't think I did. I'll have to find who did. Great, great artist steal, Amber. You know, that. that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, I would say that, uh, like we used to call listening to music on a digital device, like an MP3 player. I thought you got an MP3 player, like the Dell DJ or like the iPod. And now you just listen to music on your phone and like they, you don't call it anything. So I think similarly to NFTs, it'll just kind of be a part of our existence. Um, but that just might take some time for people who could adapt to just like anything else. I feel like when the internet first came out, people were like, everyone's going to have a computer in their home. Doubtful. Now we each have like 10 devices with screens per person. So, you know, um, I think NFTs will become that for a lot of us in the future. It's just kind of tough for people to wrap their head around it until it slowly becomes ingrained into their life. <clears throat> that, that's a good segue because last week, um, or it's a week and a half ago, I don't even know, time doesn't even exist anymore at this point. The yeah. NFT NYC was this, which is this huge event here in New York in the, the second to last week of June that brings together all the big projects. And there's these, these, there were these huge activations and these giant A-list concerts going on for certain NFT holders. And New York had a million things happening. People from all over the world came here. Anyone who was paying attention, I think, realized that you were one of the winners, I would say, of NFT NYC. I think it was really hard Thanks. to not see something going on, whether it was a collaboration or a piece you were doing or an interview. And uh, you brought a lot of sort of uh, like a lot of a lot of happiness to some of those interviews that I think was a little bit different. But you tell me what your biggest takeaway might have been from last week. To me, it felt like there was bro culture and the and the pure excess. There was a little bit less than last year, but I might have been looking at that through through rose colored lenses. I'm not sure. Did you have any big takeaways from the week, having been at you know, a centerpiece of a lot of what was going on after you kind of, after everything kind of died down, what was like the reflection that, that kind of stood out most from the week? Oh, thanks. That's nice. What'd you say? I think the biggest is that I got sick. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, people got airdrop COVID. I didn't get COVID because I had COVID 10 weeks ago, even though I blew through like 10 freaking tests to make sure. But I think everybody did last week. Everybody was just doing a, a test every 25 minutes, basically. I know. I was like, what is this? Oh, this is what having a normal cold feels like. I forgot <laughs> after three years of not getting sick other than COVID. But anyway, um, outside of that, it was just really nice to be able to see more people. I mean, I think back in November, the first NFT NYC that I kind of was around, I was a nervous of getting COVID because I hadn't had it and I have underlying conditions and like it was cold out. So everything was indoors. So I feel like my perspective was a little bit skewed just because I only met up with a few people and like saw the rest of it online as if I wasn't 
living in New York. Um, but this one felt like a lot more people were um, out and involved. And I think that because of that, to your point of like bro culture, I didn't see that as much, which is great. And I think that as more people adopt new technology, that will will happen. So we just have to keep that at the front of our minds to make sure that you know, not only a specific type of person is benefiting from this new technology, like we've seen in the past, like Web2 social media, most of the big Web2 companies are ran by white men. So hopefully with Web3, we could start to change that. And it was really refreshing to see, at least obviously NFT NYC is a small percentage of people within the Web3 um, world, but it was nice to see that it was a bit more diverse this time around. Um, So yeah. Are you are you sick of hearing that the question of like what's it like to be a female in the Web three space? Is it has it gotten to a point now that it's just like we we should all just be talking about the work and the projects and the products coming out of it, or is that something that you expect to sort of hear that question over and over again for the next short period at least? That's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. Um, I guess my my only lived experience is that of a woman. So, I mean. There's a quote that, again, my brain. I feel like ever since I had COVID, my memory's like, oh, that? Yeah, we don't do that anymore. I got the same. You got to write <laughs> everything down now. It's the only way. I know. Um, I would say that uh, there's a quote that says, like, some famous painter said it. It was like, women paint how men react to the light where men could paint the light. So I think that, like, very much so that, you know, because of limitations such as, you know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade is one of many examples of how, um, women have been set back societally. So, um, you know, as we try to gain equality and equity um, within our society, that question usually is always asked, like, how does it feel like to be a woman in a male-dominated space? And it's like, you know, I, um, I don't know if that question would be asked in the inverse, but, you know, that's not to the fault of the person asking the question because that's kind of the world that we live in. So it's like, you know, you don't realize you're surrounded by water as a fish until someone tells you. So um, I think that's kind of how this situation is. Um, I'm very fortunate um, to have other privileges. The fact that, you know, that I am married and I have a partner that has a full-time job and health insurance to allow me to freelance even before Web3. That opened that up to me being um, able to jump into Web3 pretty safely. Um, I'm also white, which I feel like also our country very much um, legally and um, legislatively makes it easier for white people to find success. Um, other than a few pre-existing conditions, I am able-bodied. So all of those privileges um, are things that have helped me, I feel like, be an early mover. And you know, I want to make sure that other people that don't have those privileges still have that opportunity to be early within a space that could be so prolific for so many different types of people and not just artists. So um, I think that answered the question. <laughs> No, absolutely. Okay. I mean, it, was, it was a really succinct answer. It's one of those things that it it is, to your point, a little bit kind of, it's the buzzy question to ask, to ask and the answer is the, becomes like the little headline or the pull quote. Yeah, but for sure. it's also one of those things that it, it is, uh, it's hard when you see an NFT NYC, and even though this year was a little more diverse, it's hard to not see one very specific it is early. That said, a lot of the early, even a lot of the early creative spaces that turned into sort of money-making opportunities were dominated by one look. And that's where we're seeing a lot of that early on. Yeah. But it does feel like the evolution can happen quicker with, with Web3 only because the personalities involved are what create a community. And seeing something different is kind of way, than, than you're used to, seems way more accessible in the Web3 space than does in the Web2 space. To your point, it's not something where 
like the adults need to come in and, and turn it into a business if it's not ready to be there yet. Then on top of that, you kind of have this element of like price volatility and, and price discovery and the crazy numbers that have followed so much in such a short period of time. Everyone sees opportunity there in a way that I think in a lot of industries, there hasn't been opportunity to make money right out of the gate. I mean, that's, and that kind of leads me to my, to my next question. We have, you know, the pace of, of all of this and how quickly it's happening, how many people are turning into what looks like overnight successes, but even for someone like you, where it's, you know, the prototypical 10 years before you're an overnight success type of thing, it yeah. feels like it feel, it's obviously there's a lot behind it. Do you think that the way price is associated with all these pieces, two questions, is that a, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And then B, the second part of that is, do you think that if, if ETH, which is obviously the, the, the currency in which most of these NFTs and most of Web3 is transacted, if, if ETH was at, you know, a dollar, do you think it's still the type of excitement around Web3 and around NFTs that we've seen over the last 18 months? Or is that something that you think price is really inexorably tied to the art? That's also, you got a great question. Um, usually people ask me the same thing, so this is really nice. <laughs> um, I would <laughs> right, say, glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. I would say that um, to your first point, I think what I love about Web3 is that you were kind of saying it before your question, so I'm answering a non-question, but um, that there are a lot of people that are like quote unquote overnight successes that are that you're seeing like sell one piece of artwork for seven figures or high six figures that have never done that before and that's awesome but i think the more important thing for me is that you see a lot of artists be able to quit their full-time jobs and support themselves and that might be making you know $75,000 a year or $50,000 a year selling their artwork and they're able to support themselves on that and i think even though that's not as flashy for like, you know, a headline in like the Wall Street Journal or something like that, it is important to show that like, this is finally a space where we have the opportunity to truly create decentralization, where we're not having these huge centralized entities, or few big winners, we're having a lot of people that are able to support themselves, doing something that brings them joy. Um, So that's something that I love to see. Um, To your actual first question about, things tethered to price i do think that it makes for a great headline um you know you re- you open up the newspaper you read the new york times it's like artist makes you know seven million dollars selling on, on a jpeg so yeah, on a jpeg yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> so i think that um that definitely is attention grabbing for better or for worse um and then to your point on the price of ETH, I think that the last 18 months, because ETH went from like, what, a couple hundred bucks to like 4,000, yeah, almost 5,000. And then back yeah. down now to, to 1,100. Yeah. So I think that um, it'll really, it really depends. So, cause like for, especially for a lot of us within NFTs, it's been the last 18 months. So, and that's been very good. So I'm curious to see if that quote unquote hype will hold through if ETH goes down. Um, but I do think it's a good opportunity, as many people say, to build as my computer falls. <laughs> um, so I think that if it's something where you're able to, even if you're doing it on the side, if you have a full-time job or other freelance work, to really learn about the space and see how it could fit in with your life, whether you're an artist or you know um, an engineer or what have you. Um, when there is less hype, it makes it a lot easier to focus. So I'm curious to see what will come out of this more quote-unquote quiet period and um, when ETH comes back. But yeah, in the long term, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm curious to see. Like, I don't know if it'll always be reliant on the Ethereum blockchain. Will there be other blockchains that take 
like precedence i don't know but um, i'm curious to see how it nets out we'll all find out eventually in the next few decades but um yeah i'm not 100 honestly like everything moves so fast right now we might find out in the next year you know like there's so there's just so much going on all the time and so the pace, true yeah. the pace is so ridiculous but on that point of of build the time to build and that's the buzzword right now that this, this is when everyone builds you build in the down periods not when everything's going great your new collection drops on July 15th. So <laughs> yeah. High, this is a good segue. Highly anticipated would be an understatement, I think. Um, Hopefully highly an- anticipated. I'm a little nervous. I was like, hello, don't forget about me. <laughs> Honestly, the, if you're not nervous about it, that means something's wrong. Anybody who's just putting something out and expecting it to just blow the doors off, I, those are people I don't want to buy NFTs from. But that said, <laughs> so true. A, a collection of 999 collages, um, really interesting mix of, of hand-cut physical work and a digital medium. Uh, you're doing no allow list, so there's no like VIP treatment or specific types of money that'll get in. What can we expect from the project? Yeah, so this is a collection I started at the beginning of the year. I'm really fascinated with generative art, but I am not a programmer by any means. And I wanted something, and a majority of my work is made by hand. I have a few pieces that are done digitally, um, but I really just enjoy painting and making things with my hands. So I was like, what can I do that's made by hand that only lives on the blockchain um, outside of editions, which I've done before? So I wanted to play with the idea of dropping cut colored pieces of paper on a scanner, scanning them in, and then wiping them. So the only remnant of that artwork is the scan of it, and eventually the NFT of it. So that's really where the idea came about. And I originally wanted to do like 5,000 of them. And then um, as I got to like 500, I was like, <laughs> you start to reconsider. Yeah, I was like, what's the why? So I wanted to have a high enough volume where people felt like a one of one was accessible. And that's why I priced it um, the way that I priced it because I wanted, I feel like everyone should have access to original art. Um, not all artists would agree with me on that, but that's fine. Um, so nine is my favorite number, like a little nine pendant. Um, so 999, I was like, that feels nice. 0.09 ETH per piece feels good thematically to who I am but then also like you know it's a high enough number without you know driving me into a wall scanning thousands of them um and then the I started to also play with like some of the like traits so um they all have my signature like sometimes my signature is covered sometimes it's not covered sometimes I place the paper down sometimes I just kind of dropped it on the scanner so I wanted to add that into the metadata too um because it kind of just shows you know, um, my thought process behind each piece in a subtle way. And then also where the pieces were made. Um, I was in LA for the beginning of the year. I live in New York throughout that. You know, we traveled a little bit within the US. So I tried to mark when I would make these too. So it feels a lot more personal about me making them and embracing the idea of the memory because they're called memories of a masterpiece. So um, I kind of wanted it to be thematically um tied together in all aspects of creating it so hopefully people like it <laughs> great title too by the way it's a great work and obviously it's something that is is incredibly unique it's also super thematic to your work it looks and feels like amber victoria but it also looks and feels like something incredibly new and it's again it's not investment advice by any means but you <laughs> nothing is fact- financial advice <laughs> <laughs> nothing is ever financial advice always no. do your own research but you pointed <laughs> out something uh, about price that i want to touch on really quickly 0.09 ETH, which, you know, at this which point, now is 0.09 cents. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, which is now nine cents, which is under $100, right? Right now, at least. And that could change, obviously. But, you know, it has meaning to you. But at the same time, your work 
on the secondary market, physical and digital commands a price that's much higher than that right now. What is the thought process always accessibility? Is it something where it's, again, to your point, this is a, a number that you have an emotional connection to? Is it based on the current market? Or is all of it part of the concept in terms of price? How do you how do you how do you create price and tie that to the value of the work? Is there any sort of scientific method that you use to it, or is it something where you want it to just feel right and re, and be democratized? Um, I would probably say the latter. There's never a science to it. People ask me like, "How do you come to your prices?" And I'm like, "Beats me." Um, but for this one, I priced it. I think when ETH was at twenty five hundred. So, <laughs> but I told people I was like, "If ETH skyrockets, maybe I'll adjust it." If ETH plummets, I'm not going to because that's um, a little bit selfish um, after being like, it's 0.09, psych, it's 0.9. I don't want to <laughs> do that to people um, just because I know people have been saving for a, a while. There are some folks that are in my Discord that, you know, they work full-time jobs and they're teachers and like, you know, to play with price as if, you know, they have thousands of dollars to blow on art is, um, I think, a bit unfair. So for this, because I made so many, I wanted to be something that was accessible. I think it plays in inherently to the fact that we are in a bear market, at least stock market-wise in the United States, but then also with how Ethereum has been behaving over the last several months. Um, so it gives people an opportunity if they want to flip and trade it, and like that's their whole thing. They love the game. They can do that. It's not at a price that is, you know, I mean, depending on the person and their background, not too, too difficult to be able to It's accessible. Definitely, definitely accessible relative to other mints for, yeah. for artists with similar followings and similar hype. I think it is something that, again, not investment advice, but is reasonable. And kudos yeah. for, for not, I think a lot of people want to put these long-winded stories around like the way they price something and they, that's part of like the sell to say, like, I came up with a number, you know. It is I love it is. the number nine. and it's I love the number nine. And I said I was going to keep it where it was. So I'm keeping at the exact price of where it was. Like, that's that's a, that's a that's refreshing and it's authentic. I think it's really true to you as an artist, too. Everything that we've seen in the digital space from you over the last year, that kind of matches the ethos. So it's good to see you stuck with it. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, of course. And hopefully people like it. And I think there have been a lot of people that are like, oh, I miss out on your edition drops. And, like, you know, I can't swing some of your older one-of-ones. So I'm really excited to mint one. And people are nervous that they're going to sell out. I'm like, there are a thousand of them and we are in a bear market. I think you're going to be fine. <laughs> well, I listen, mean, the, it's definitely different. You, the, your first project took something like two or three months to sell out, if I'm not mistaken. That obviously would not be the case today, but it's all part of the journey too. You know, like there is some, there's, if you got a, an ambulatory one of one early on, that's like a gem that you're holding on to right now. So to say like, sellout timing or if it sells out or if it mints out that to me that's not even part of, of the way it works anymore if it's great work and it's got a community behind it and an artist or a group who really cares that's what dictates the value not the sellout not the immediate sellout you know and that's what i'm hoping this bear market kind of does get rid of the like hype sellout culture not sell out like you're selling out as an artist, but like sell out like the thing sells out quickly. Sometimes they're connected, but yeah. Yeah, sometimes they are connected. Um, but uh, I think that um, ideally people won't feel the pressure to have everything sold out all the time. Because I know I definitely felt that pressure at certain points over the last year. And I was like, why? Like, I've never cared about this before. Why am I caring now? So um, hopefully this will, this bear market will help adjust some people's expectations with things like that going forward. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit it on the head there with like the future of what I, what I, at least I believe the future of Web3 is and a lot of people do. And I think that everybody's going to be going to be pleasantly surprised when they realize, you know, two or three years from now, they have one of your pieces in their portfolio. It's going to be it's, it seems like it's a, very meaningful to a lot of people right now. and The community has definitely supported it. Um, we typically end with a couple of quick questions and they, they relate to you and to the work. But 
sort of quick hits that I want to ask you and get your thoughts on. The first of which was who is your favorite kind of under the radar creator or artist right now? Who's the person that you sort of look at and say, like, I love what that person's doing, even though others might not know the name? Um, my friend, Danielle Evans, um, she uh, does beautiful, like, 3D, like, physical. <laughs> now you say 3D, it could also be digital. You have to say physical. You have to make sure you're saying physical, yes. <laughs> 3D, like, lettering and objects and shapes. And she um, has a few collections um, that she has for um, as NFTs, but then also she's very prolific in all of her quiet and corporate work as well. And we've been friends for a few years. And all of her work is very thoughtful. Um, people are like, oh, Amber, your work's so thoughtful. It's like, yes, yes. But like Danielle's work is very thoughtful. So um, I hope that more people start to give her flowers because her work is exceptional. That's a good friend. That's a good friend that, yeah, that she has and uh, that making sure that everyone knows I'm into it. The Thinking about art and your childhood, I know that you kind of took up art early on and you've had some great stories that you've told about it along the way. What's, the, what's your favorite sort of art-related memory from childhood? There are a few of them. Um, I would say the one is the one that was in the 137 video um, where like my dad was teaching me how to color and um, and then I was just scribbling afterwards. So I was scribbling in a coloring book. And my dad's like, this is how you color in the lines. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. And then I went back to scribbling and my parents actually watched the 137 documentary. My mom was like, that was me. And my dad's like, no, that was me. <laughs> And I was like, well, you were both there. We were on vacation in Cape Cod. I was like five. So I feel like it was dad. So maybe it was both of them. And this happened multiple times when I was just that stubborn. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The probably color. Cool. And then I like ignored them. Um, so that's my favorite memory. But now apparently that memory is contested by my mom. <laughs> so well, that's, uh, well, that's just that's just proud parents. That's how it is. That's that, how it always goes. Like I It was that same pretty thing. funny. You're the you're the. Yeah, you're, the, you're the, the, the successful artist's daughter. They want to make sure they're a part of that. There's no revisionist history. They want to make sure they're a part of those <laughs> earliest memories of how it happened. I have the same thing with my parents, so I completely understand. That's hilarious. But yeah, I mean, at least not just my parents. But I was like, oh, oops. I, you know, memories aren't the strongest, so I wouldn't doubt that it'd probably have been both of them at one point or another. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. And then the, the last question I had was, whether it's uh, something you collect or it's something that you have or an investment you made, what's, what's the best money that you've ever spent, you think, lifetime to this point? Oh, dang. Um, the best money I've ever spent. Uh, I guess my instinct would be my education, um, my college education, not in the sense of like, everybody should go to college, but in the sense that, and hear me out, that when I, I went to art school, and um, I do think that as much as I love that program, um, if you want to do something, unless you want to be like a doctor or a lawyer, where you need to go to a billion years of school and like, you know, do the process, like if you really want to do something, like whether it's in business and art and college is not for you, like you have to listen to that. But anyway, Went to art school, met my friend Jessica, who later on, after I worked at Victoria's Secret, told me about VaynerMedia, worked at VaynerMedia. That's where I met my husband, Dave. And so I think because of that, it kind of, you know, like, and then I also met like Gary and Gary's brother, AJ, and like a whole slew of friends from working there. But that was because of my friend Jessica that I went to college with. So that's why I say college. <laughs> that's, a, that's a that's a great answer because you just it's a great answer to end on too you just described art it starts with an idea it's a thing it happens it grows over time emotion gets attached to it you meet all these great people 
becomes a part of your life. And now you look yep. back and you say that was exactly the right moment to do it. So great answer. Amber, I really appreciate it. Everybody, I hope, sort of pays attention to what she's up to. Follow her. Pay attention to a new project that's dropping. Also, she touched on it quick. I'm saying this as somebody who wanted to have an art career. She has the best signature out of any artist that I've ever <laughs> seen. Anybody who hasn't seen it, Google Amber Victoria's signature. It's art within itself. Thank Amber, thank you. you so much. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. That was episode 11 of The Best Money I Ever Spent. As we discussed a bit, Amber's new collection, Memories of a Masterpiece, drops July 15th. You'll only be able to find it linked out on her Twitter, which is Amber underscore Vittoria. And that's linked in the description for this episode, so you have no trouble finding it. The first collection she put out over a year ago, it took months to sell out, as we kind of talked about, but that's certainly not going to be the case this time. This week on Rally, initial offerings for Superman number six, which is a CGC 8.5 example, priced at $24,000, $8 per share. And the first gold coin goes live on Friday, date back to around 550 BC. That's a $64,000 initial offering, also $8 per share. Finally, as a reminder, do not listen to me or anyone for investment advice. Always do your own research and be sure to read the disclaimer on rallyroad.com before making any investment. All investments involve risk. This is no different past performance is never an indication of future performance. I'm Rob Petrozo. I'll be back soon. Until then, you can find us on rallyroad.com, rallyrd.com. We're at rally on Instagram and at onrallyrd on Twitter. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything in between. We'll see you soon with a new episode from someone who treats art a bit differently than Amber. More to come. <laughs>